Well, it has been a blessing to be here this weekend, and uh, just so thankful um, to, to be up here. I've, I've, I've gotten to know Daniel in the last couple of years as we've been doing this counseling course, and he's come down, and both him and his wife, and it's just been really encouraging to to meet him and to to hear about what's going on here. And, and now I get to be here with you, so I'm just been it's been a great weekend, and I just thank you for your hospitality and the fellowship that we've had. Um, Let's uh, before we before we look into the word this morning. It's such a privilege, by the way. Thank you for this opportunity to preach the word to you. But uh, before we look to it, let's let's uh, just spend a moment in prayer and uh, thank the Lord for this time. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity that we have as a as a group of believers, Lord, to come together and and look at Your Word and be fixated on You. I pray, Lord, now for us, our hearts, that we would be ready to receive it. Lord, I pray for myself as I, I deliver your word that it would be focused on your truth and, and, your, and what, what has been gleaned from knowing you and studying your passage, your word. Lord, I pray now for all of us that we together would be driven in excellence, Lord, for your glory. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as I was coming up here this this week, I was thinking, what should I preach to you? And and uh, thinking about uh, the topic of the, the weekend, um, biblical counseling and soul care and the sufficiency of the scripture for everything with life and godliness. I thought about that passage in Second Peter. Um, so if you if you would turn to Second Peter, chapter one, and that's we're going to be looking at that passage for this morning's sermon. Now, you can probably hear from my accent. Before we get to it, let me just tell you a little bit. Second Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 1. Um, you hear from my accent. I wasn't, I'm not from around here. I wasn't born in Australia. I was born in the States. Um, but um, but I'm, my last name, my surname is Martinez. I'm not, my family, my history is not from the States or even from Europe. It's, it's uh, from Cuba. My parents are both from Cuba. And they fled communist Cuba back in the 60s met in America um, both of their families and I grew up hearing stories about what it was like to be living in Cuba back you know in the 40s and 50s and then that transformation that occurred back then that, that revolution of them turning from a capitalistic country to a communist country and, and all that went along with it and the drama and, and my um, grandfather's family, my, my father's side of the family, my grandfather was a very wealthy uh, businessman, and uh, to hear how he was considered an abs- the, the family and him was uh, considered a dog and a worm because he was part of the capitalist elite, and uh, the stories that went along with it were amazing. Even, they were even threatened by, with guns because, of eating, because they were eating their own food. They owned a chain of markets, and they went to eat their own food, and they were threatened in, uh, by, uh, under a force of guns to go away. Um, so stories like that, and, and during this turmoil of, of this cultural revolution, this cu- this this uh, huge revolution in Cuba, uh, the Cuban culture was overwhelmed with a state of fear and poverty, and money had run out. The economy was in a bad way. Everyone was angry. Everyone was hungry. And a new political military force had rolled in and seized control of the nation and bred fear there. A new way of life. And and this great fear was instilled in these people and impacted everything, every, every, every facet of life there. And the people related to each other differently. And the whole world changed for them. 
And moving from this capitalism to communism, this individual success to individual success was now frowned upon in Cuba. And, and uh, really, when they said everything was for the good of the nation, really it was just for the good of those power elite people in, in the government. Well, in this new social economic world um, that they had made, there was now no impetus, no, no drive for excellence, no drive to do well, because everybody was making the same amount. And in fact, what was interesting was because you're going to get paid the same amount either way, no matter whether you work hard or, or you're not, there was actually no reason to work hard. And if you did work hard, that was frowned upon. Because you're making everyone else look bad. Why are you trying? Why are you doing this? You're just going to make it harder for us. Don't worry about it. Nobody wants to be forced to work harder. You would, you would be seen as showing off if you were working hard. If you were striving for excellence in your job. Because, hey, we're all going to get paid the same amount. You're just going to make me look bad. The workmasters would require more work if everyone was required to work as hard as those people who were actually trying for the sake of trying hard. So if you were trying hard, you were cut down. And no one wanted to work hard. So don't you dare. This is the cultural norm now. Don't you dare work hard. Don't you dare be excellent. Just kick back. Chill. Relax. It's okay. And with that mentality, it's not a surprise that Cuba, which was once a very wealthy country, went from an wealth, one of the wealthiest countries in the Americas to now the absolute poorest. What does that have to do with us today? Well, I love Australia. I've been here eight years. I married an Australian. I have no desire to ever go back. I became an Australian citizen. But I have something, I've seen something here. There is something here I've seen that I think is similar to what happened in Cuba so many years ago. And the most distressing is the fact that I see it impacting the Australian church. In root form, there is a similar persecution and presupposition here that is fueling a steady decline in the church towards weakness and worthlessness. The presupposition that was created in an era of military fear in communist Cuba that made the Cuba decline from a great to a good country, from a good country to an average country, and now from an average country to a very poor country. That same presupposition has been here a lot longer, but has not been enforced by guns or by the government, but pushed by society, by a societal norm. We are being indoctrinated the very moment we are born in Australia, the very moment you arrive here, it's been pushed by people. And what is that presupposition that slowly encourages ineffectiveness and apathetic behavior in the church? Three words. Tall poppy syndrome. Tall poppy syndrome. The Macquarie Dictionary, and I'm making sure that I'm quoting an Australian dictionary so there's no offense. Like, hey, what are you, what are you saying? The Macquarie Dictionary defines the tall poppy syndrome as the desire to diminish in stature those who have attained excellence. Obviously, there are many differences between here and communist Cuba. I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying they're, they're, they're the same. Australia does reward hard work. It is capitalistic. It does reward hard work in the sense in which we're encouraged socially to be excellent. Just 
but excellent to be good enough. Just good enough. Succeed, but don't, out, don't shine too brightly, right? Achieve, but no, we will make sure you're not proud of it. That's our way. In other words, do well, but be sure to make sure, be sure to, but don't be too much better than everyone else. Don't shine too brightly or we'll cut you down. That's the tall poppy syndrome. We will give, we'll give you a compliment, but we're always going to add a little jibe to keep you humble, right? That's our way. We'll encourage and rejoice in your accomplishments and excellence, but we don't want it to be a glaring fact around us. And that's just, that's just the way. That's not, and you know what? Here's the thing. That's not just Australia. That's everybody. That's everywhere. This is part of human nature. This is part of human This is part of, of the fall. We don't want to be forced and driven to work harder if we don't have to. We all encourage good, but, but ask, why are you striving to be great? Just be good enough. That's enough. You want to finish, but why do you want to be excellent? Now, here's the danger that we face in our conservative circles, in our churches like ours. And I think our church is, my church in, in, in Melbourne is, is similar to your church in the way that we think, in the way that we view the Bible. We know the Bible. We understand we are saved by grace alone. And we don't want to be Pharisees. Here is the danger that we face in places like here, in the quiet places of our mind. When we say, Jesus died on the cross, isn't that good enough? Why do we have to be excellent? When I have faith, and I'm growing in the Lord, I'm basically more sanctified now than I was when I first believed. And like everyone else, I'm growing. Isn't that good enough? Well, my answer to you is, yes, it is. Yes, it is good enough. Yes, it's good enough. And if you have truly repented of your sins and have received a new heart in Christ, become a born-again believer, a Christian, then that is more than good enough to get into heaven. That is more than good enough. And if you are generally walking in the Lord, yes, that's good. Wonderful. But let me ask you an important question. Good enough for what? Yes, it's good enough, but good enough for what? What do you, what do you mean, is it good enough? What is your standard? What is your aim? Christian, what are you trying to do with this redeemed life that you have in Christ? These few years that you have on earth before you go home. How will you live? What is your motivation? Do you want to be good or do you want to be excellent? Do you want to be good? Do you want to be a good dad or a good mom? Or do you want to be an excellent parent in the Lord? Do you want to be a good person or an excellent man or woman of the Lord. A model for what Christ can do in the life of a redeemed saint here on earth. Do you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Or do you want to hear, okay, good enough, come on in. That's the difference. That's the motivation. As a pastor, I meet lots of Christians. All the time I hear preachers preaching all the time and 
And what stands out to me is not what's good, but what is excellent. What I remember, what impacts me, what motivates me, are the what, what's influenced me, what I love is when I've been ministered to by men who, who preach the word excellently. Not, okay. When I hear the truth being proclaimed by a life that's been transformed in an excellent manner, that stands out and says, wow, that is God working. That's excellence. That's what I remember. That's what motivates me. That's what, that's what impacts me is excellence in the Lord. Way too often we settle with, it's good enough. And I believe every time we settle with, it's good enough, it's a shame to our Lord. It's shameful to have the mindset when you consider the calling that you have and the resources that you have in the Lord that God has given to us in His Son. Remember, His calling is also his enabling. We have more than enough in him, from him. And I've been thinking about this a lot in the last couple of years. And I'm sharing with you today, what I want to share with you today, something I've gleaned from my studies, my personal devotion, that, of, of trying to figure out how can, I, how can I live in a way that's more, most glorifying the Lord. And I regularly ask myself, why do you, why, you know, the, the question I keep asking is, why do I do that? Why, why did I just do that? Why did I just say it in that way? What's my motivation? What's my purpose? How, you know, and, and, I'm, and in my study of trying to figure out what is excellence, what am I really trying to, what am I here for, Lord? In my own personal study, I, you know, I picked up this one work by a, a man named Andrew Kostenberger, and the name of that book was Excellence. And I've, I've been really impacted by some of what he's written about this passage we're going to look at in Second Peter. You can read it for yourself. It's a, really, it's a scholarly work. It's called Excellence of the Character of God in the Pursuit of Scholarly Virtue. And I'll tell you right now, it's a good read, but it's a dry read. <laughs> it's boring. So I'll, I'll, glean, I'll give you what I've gleaned from it. But I was especially convicted and encouraged by his exposition of this text. And I want to share some of that with you today. And I thought I knew this passage. And you know, this is one of those passages I've used all the time, and it's, uh, especially in counseling. I, I use it all the time. But it's one of those passages where I thought I knew it, and then I had to look at it again, and I saw there was a lot I was missing. I just want to bring that to you. So, turn, so if you haven't done so already, turn with me, Second Peter 1. And this author, starting in verse 1, with the author of the book, states his name, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. This is Peter. This is one of the twelve disciples. One of the three. He is writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. The Apostle Peter is writing to these churches of Asia Minor. And, and the reason he's writing this to them is because of the growing threat at the church at large. False teachers false doctrine that was creeping into the church. The church was starting to embrace. And so he writes this letter to attack and defend against the false teachers. And it is here in the opening letter in which the church, which he receives to the church, the purpose of this letter to remedy the false teaching, to remedy what was happening. 
This, that is, to have full understanding and implication of our salvation in Jesus Christ. If you understand that, then you're inoculated. You don't have to worry. So he reminds them of this truth at the very beginning. This morning, we'll see that it is in our salvation alone that we learn about our calling in Christ to an excellence of the faith. So starting verse 3, read with me. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption of that uh, from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire for this reason make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for if these qualities are yours and increasing they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus. For who, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten what has cleansed, what has cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For in your practice of these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way. There will be richly provided for you an an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage gives us five reasons you, Christian, are to pursue excellence in all that you do. Five reasons so that you can have a life that is better than good, but is excellent. Reasons to strive beyond the norm, to strive for holiness. You may be thinking, why does God call us to be excellent in all that we do? Well, the reason, the first reason answers that question. Verses 3 and 5, your pursuit of excellence is from God. Your pursuit of excellence is from God. Verse 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And skipping to verse 5. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. The goal always defines the plan. Remember, Peter's trying to keep the people in the church from turning to the, to the false teachers. Rather than attacking the false teachers themselves or the false teachings themselves, the, he brings them back to the very core truth of their salvation, of who they are in Christ. When you have a goal, the direction you will take will be marked by, whether, by where you're going. So what he is saying here is that where, whatever you are, wherever you are right now, the power of God has been given to you, in all that you and all that you need to make that goal a reality, to get you to the goal, wherever you are right now. Everything you need to know is where the goal is. And God will make sure that there's a straight line from wherever you are to that goal. The false teachers are trying to get you in the church to change your direction, to swerve a little bit to the left or to a little bit to the right. 
But believe that God's words and His promises are real. Not that they're not, and, and not, don't believe the lie that they're not enough to get you to the goal. They're enough, more than enough. Don't need, there's no need to turn to the left or to the right. For the Christian, in 1 Peter 1.3, Peter points to the fact that in the very beginning, at the, in the beginning, at the end, at the end of the race, it is always anchored, you're always anchored to God and His own glory and His excellencies, His power, not your own. Look at the first three words there. His divine power. I want you to consider how immeasurable that power is. It's God's power, not your power. God's power. The same power that transformed this, that transformed nothing into something, that created the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, 1. His divine power. That word for power is dynamis, which conveys not an explosion, the Greek word for not an explosion, but a controlled potential for power, a controlled explosion of power, ready to go. Dynamis the origin, is the origin for the word dynamite in our English language. And it's an incredible amount of power packed into a stick with a fuse at the end of it, ready to explode. His divine power. This absolute power has been granted, back into our passage, given, sovereignly ordained and bestowed upon almost everything that we need for life and godliness. Is that what it says there? No, not almost, but for all things. That dynamis, that power, that, that unmeasurable power that can turn something from nothing, God's power, has been granted, given, bestowed upon the believer for all things. We treat God like he's saying almost all things. We need something else. We need to lean on something else. But it's really all things, everything, anything. We often default to our own leanings, our own understandings, the teachings of others, those who have degrees, those who have, have smarts. But God's saying, everything you need is right here, it's in my power. It's been granted to you, bestowed upon you. We look to others. We look to books upon books to understand life's problems. Do you remember Solomon's counsel at the end of Ecclesiastes? Ecclesiastes 12, 12. My son, beware of anything beyond these things. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a, wearisome to, is a weariness of the flesh. There are so many books out there, my son. I'm telling you how to live trying to figure out life's problems. What he's saying is in this text is that outside of God's wisdom, there is a never-ending search for meaning. And if you go down that route, you are going to be so tired because no one's going to give you the answer. Beyond, outside of this, there is no answer. That's why the very next verse, Solomon concludes with the same truth that's in our passage in 2 Peter. Ecclesiastes 12.13 The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Fear God and keep His commandments. 
through his divine power and through his word, the source of the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, our verse. Rather, than, rather we have a promise and a statement of fact, of fact right here. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things mean all things. It's actually emphasized in the Greek. He's emphasizing, he's being emphatic here. Everything, everything has been given to you. Everything you need. His calling is his enabling. Everything you need for your salvation and your sanctification is here. It has already been given freely to you through your son, through my son. And that's an awesome truth. And the point we have is total sufficiency in God's word. Total sufficiency in God through his word and through his resources. But that is where I often leave it. I often understand that. I leave it. I leave it there. And here's a small detail that I've often overlooked. For this reason, in our verse, we have been given access to his power so that we can be like his son now, transformed now, so that we can walk in his glory and in his ways now. Kostenberger writes, The end goal of believers' life is not power, it's not influence, money, security, or possessions, but becoming once again like their their creator and savior in whose image they were originally made. That's our calling. See, your calling from death to life is a calling for God's glory. Look at the end of verse 3. It is a call to his Excellence. Excellence. And also in verse 5, that same word for excellence is translated. Same word as virtue. Excellence. Virtue. The word for excellence or virtue has a range of meaning that is hard to translate into English. The word means exceptional character, merit with a social context, Conduct that invites recognition resulting in glory. Like a spiritual hero listed in Hebrews 11. Those who conduct, whose conduct was excellent, above the norm. God has called you to his own glory. And may I point out to his own excellence. To stand out above the rest. He's called you for glory. And this is a very important point here. God is the grounds for all true excellence, all true virtue. Everything that God does is best and is marked by excellence. He never does just a good job. He's always perfect. He's always excellent. And that's our model. When God does something and says something, it's the best it could possibly be. It has the best character attached with it. The best wording. The absolute, I mean, he's God. He's a God of excellence. And we are his people. Now, when God does something, we can, of course, say, well, yeah, that's God. He's God. I'm a God. That's God. I understand that. He has to do things with excellence. But we can easily dismiss the notion 
that we are also called to have the same excellence in our life. Why? Because we're sinners. I mean, yeah, I'm limited. I'm broken. If I'm trying to do things with excellence to be superior, is that not, in essence, an act of pride? Perfectionism? Leaning on my own flesh? Does that make me a Pharisee or something? My answer to you is yes, of course it does. Yes. But that's because you're thinking of your calling in the wrong way. The presupposition there is wrong. You're trying to do it on your own. You're trying to do it for the wrong purpose. If you're doing these things to be superior, that's an act of pride. Full stop. If you're trying to be God or be like God in your own strengths, you're not going to make it. You're always going to fail. And that is not what Peter is calling us to do here. That is not our calling. It never was. Excellence describes every aspect of who we are in Christ. Our character in Christ. And, that, and what we do in our relationship and how it works out. How that relationship in Christ works out in our lives. Leaning on Him. And here's the difference that makes this calling for excellence not an issue of pride, but actually an issue of humility. You are not called to perform for Christ. You are called to live for Christ. A huge difference. You don't perform in your own strengths. You, do, you have been bought and transformed in the power of Jesus Christ. Through Christ. So that you can live His life now. You are living for Him. Not performing for Him. That's the life you have now in Christ It's not your best life now. That's your life now in Christ. Excellence is what you do because you live in Christ for Christ, not for yourself. Make no mistake that I am not saying we who are in Christ do not have a spiritual battle. Quite the contrary. This new life in Christ, calling for God's glory in your life, is the battle. It creates conflict. Because you are redeemed, but you're not perfected. Because you are new creation, living in a broken, sin-cursed world. And that struggle gives him glory. That struggle of breaking away from the darkness into light in this dark world makes makes the world look so ugly and him so good. That excellence that you have in this world where you stand beyond and above the world as the light of Christ shines through you tells the world that the world is broken. And God finds that glory, that find, God finds glory in that. It's praiseworthy. But that is what gives you the opportunity of an eternal lifetime to display the excellencies of God for this world. Excellence, exceptional character and conduct that invites recognition resulting in glory. That person is of God. The excellence, that's not of this world. That doesn't make sense in this world. He's, He's not from around here. He's from God. The glory goes to God, not you. Why weren't you glorified once you believed for that purpose? 
for the purpose of shining now, of showing his glory, his excellence now. God is working in you, provides the means, and he provides the means and the ability to be like him, to be conformed to him, to function in his body because you are living with him. And we know that everything that he does is the bestest. I said that on purpose. It's the best. There's nothing. I mean, when he does something in your life, that's the best, best way to do it. How he crafted you, when he saved you, how he saved you. That is the way God wanted. He orchestrated your life. And all those hurts, he can use those things. He does use them in a way that doesn't make any sense. But he's able to do it because he's God. He brings meaning to the pain, to the sin. He brings power in a life that has no power. He's God. He, has, he receives glory from that as he works in your life in an excellent manner. Your salvation, your trials, your, the pitfalls you find now and until the goal, all for his glory. And the reasons we pursue excellence is because we are walking with and living for God it goes hand in hand with who we are in Christ. And the Apostle Paul understood this perfectly. If you turn briefly to Colossians 1, 28-29, he said, Paul said, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. And he, power, that he powerfully works within me. I toil. This is, I pointed this out yesterday in our meeting. I toil with his energy, not my own. With his energy, his excellencies, not my own. I love it when God gets his grammar wrong. It points out the truth to us. Because this seemingly inappropriate use of pronouns, it should be, I toil with all my might and all my strength. Paul says purposefully, I toil with all of his power and his might, and his strength, for his glory, not my own. Paul understood his striving for excellence was not done in his own strength, but because he was in Christ and doing the work of Christ and was under the power of Christ, who would receive all the glory, not himself. Now, you say, okay, great. Our pursuit of excellence is from our relationship that we have with God. In God, in Christ. Now here's the question. How can we pursue excellence without becoming self-righteous? How is that possible? Well, Peter has already hinted at that. Looking back at first at, at uh, Second Peter, look at verses five and seven with me. Second reason, your purpose for excellence is for God's glory. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your Faith with virtue, with excellence, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. See, this is not, this is not a laundry list. This is just not a, a random list. This is a natural progression of the outcome of excellence in your life. For this reason, referring back to the calling and provisions that we looked at in verse 3. Make every effort. That word of effort has a connotation of a zealous pursuit. Make sure this is happening in your life. Make sure that you're zealously looking for this to occur in your life. Every means every single opportunity that you see, you do. Supplement. 
give or supply something that is useful or of benefit. You know, if you have children, I'm sure your children do this because all my, most of my, I have four kids. One of them is still just starting to crawl. He hasn't done this yet, but if you have a child, they will come up to you and look at you like they have something really important to give you. And you look at them, oh, what's, what, what is it? And they go, and, and you're like, oh, here you go. And, and then all of a sudden you get handed a scrap, a piece of rubbish, a dead insect. And, they, and then before you realize that you, they've given you their rubbish they didn't know what to do with, they're off running away, you know, going to do their thing. And you're like, oh, great, thanks. Supplement. <laughs> Make sure that what you're doing in life is not the rubbish. Make sure you're not giving God rubbish. Going, oh, Lord, this is what I have for you. See ya. Make sure that what, how you're living your life, what you're doing, is not full of rubbish, but is purposeful. You're supplementing it. <laughs> you're giving purpose to it. Making sure it's beneficial, what you do. The call here is to actively, purposely look for ways to add to your faith that which is of benefit. As one commentator, one commentator said, this is the ladder of faith. First, supplement your faith with excellence or virtue. J.P. Moreland writes, A virtue is a skill, habit, an ingrained disposition to act, think, or feel in a certain way. Virtues are those good parts of one's character that, may, that make a person excellent in life in, or in general. As with any skill, a virtue becomes ingrained in personality and thus a part of your very nature through repetition, practice, and training. In other words, this takes time. This takes time. It's purposeful. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching others I may, should be disqualified. See, often we think that the way we live doesn't impact who we are. But the reality is you are now becoming the person you are going to be. Today, the person you are in the future is directly connected to who you are today. And the decisions you make now, the choices you make now, will impact whoever that is, whatever that person looks like in the future. And if you're not pursuing excellence today, why on earth would you possibly think of yourself to be a mature believer in the future? An excellent Christian in the future? Why do you even think you would hear, well done, good and faithful servant? If you're eating junk food, which may sustain you in life for a little while... Why then do you not realize that if you only eat junk food, your quality of life will be impacted? In the future, you know, 100 kilos later and diabetes and all sorts of things later, you think, what happened? Why did this happen to me? The reason is obvious. You had a life that was not full of virtue. It was, it was you're purposely tearing things down. Our spiritual life is the same way. Now, and pursuing virtue. Now, virtue to knowledge. See, you need to know the truth to be able to apply the truth. That's not rocket science. It's obvious. Here, Peter is talking about the knowledge that we gain from our study of God's word, through the word, learning about him, what pleases him, how to live. This call to knowledge, call to the, knowing the word, leads us to understanding. And knowledge develops into self-control. This is a ladder. We're going up the ring, the rungs here. This is the exact opposite from the excess of moral corruption that we have been freed from in verse 4. 
The word means mastery, self-control, mastery of desire. Not being ruled by the flesh, but being ruled by the Spirit of God. And from self-control, that leads to steadfastness. As we pursue, our, as we purpose ourselves for God's glory and learn to control ourselves, there will be an ongoing impact. Your faithfulness, your perseverance. This is the same steadfastness that James talks about in James 1, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness leads to godliness. That perseverance leads to godliness. And now we're nearing the top of the ladder. His divine power has, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. As we grow, we move towards that. Christians are to live consistently and show a practical awareness of God in every aspect of our life. And that is going to look like a life of godliness being characterized with holy living. And godliness leads to what? What's the next rung? To brotherly affection. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's the end. Having a brotherly affection for one another is evidence of God's excellence in your life. That's, the, that's, that's it. I know I can see God working in your life because just the way you are with the brethren. And brotherly affection leads to what? Love. This is the top of the ladder now. And once fully formed, your excellence of faith will appear as God appears. God is love. A God of love, every action and every work guided and wrapped in his love. We are to love God with all our being, with all our soul, with our might, and love our neighbor as ourselves. And there is no law above this. That's the top of the ladder. And that's how we get to that ladder. That's how we strive for that excellence in our life. See, this passage explains how our pursuit of excellence is for God's glory, not our own. How we live for God's glory, not our own. The excellence we strive is not to be superior, but it's for God's purposes. Peter First, he answers the question by telling us who we are. We are people of faith, given everything necessary from God for his glory and his excellence. This gives us the opportunity to participate with God in what we are doing in this world through us, a relationship of grace. And Peter then answers, second Peter answers, who we ought to become, knowing this, the goal of our salvation is our transformation of being like him, God is love. A lot, God for his, uh, purposed for his glory. To be like him so that we can know him, understand him, because we love him and want to honor him. And third Peter answers, how do we get there? We achieve all this by fulfilling God's purpose for our life. Living in faith for his glory. One commentator writes, while salvation is a work of grace and virtues too must be undergirded by grace, their acquisition is not automatic but requires moral effort. Holiness is not zapped, it's, it's sought through God's grace. 
This is the progression that we have read from verses 5 to 7. That ladder of faith which outlines how this progression of effort works in your life. Transmits in your life. To supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue to knowledge, from with self, for, uh, with knowledge to self-control, to steadfastness, to godliness, to brotherly affection, which will end with the ultimate outcome: having a life that mirrors the love of God in this world. Your calling, His calling, is your enabling. His His calling is His enabling. Okay, so we we, we purpose for excellence and in, in for God's glory. Which is, ver- the sec- which is the second reason. Now, we move to the third reason. I'll go a little bit faster here. We go to the third reason to pursue excellence. And this is crucial in how we do it. And this makes our, our pursuit of excellence completely different from other pursuits of excellence. Verses 3 and 4. Back to verses 3 and 4. Your power in excellence is a grace of God. A grace of God, not a work of man. So going back to verses 3 and 4, and you might have thought I forgot verse 4, but I didn't. Look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you have become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Your call of excellence, excellence is given from God as a grace to you. Let me be very clear. Your calling to excellence is God's initiative, not yours. This is God's initiative, his calling, not yours. And this is important because in Christ, your accomplishments are credited to you, but they are done through his power and his calling. So there is no reason or ability for you to ever boast about your good works. It's like if a rich man gave you a million dollars and you spend it and you enjoy it, but you never can claim it as your own work. You can never say, I earned it. It was a gift. You can enjoy it the resource that came to your way, but you can never say you earned it. It would be a lie and an offense to the person, the gracious rich man who gave you so much money. And in the same way, when you boast outwardly or inwardly to yourself about the good works that you do, that you appreciate, that you've done without acknowledging God's grace in your life, then you're lying to yourself. You're lying to others. You're offending a gracious, rich God who gave you in mercy his grace to fulfill that calling. He's giving you access to his divine power and you are living your godly life through that power, not your own. It's a grace. And we're called to excellence so that we can enjoy our life in Christ. Walking closely with him and being used by him for his purposes, for his glory. But we can never, ever boast that we did it. Never. We have a partnership there. And we're using his resources and his grace for it, for his glory. There's no room for false modesty either. You have a high calling, brethren. You have a high calling. And when you do a good work, 
enjoy it and praise God for it. Praise God. Praise God that, that he used me. I, I can't believe it because I'm such a wretched sinner. But he used me. He redeemed me for his glory. You can't say, oh, I was nothing. That's false modesty. Honor him with your life. Honor the accomplishments that he has done in your life. For his glory, not yours. You and all that you achieve are simply works of a divine God working out his glory through you. It's a grace. It's a grace. It's his grace because God is the one who has supplied all your needs. And he's the one that has, has working through, his, through you. His excellences, excellencies are working through you, through your knowledge of him, through the spirit of God that he's given you, that he gives us the ability to be partakers of this divine nature. That's what it means there, to be a partaker of the divine nature. Have you ever considered what that means? To be a partaker of his divine nature? Because of what Christ did on the cross, you have been redeemed. You are a new creation. You are now spiritually alive and able to work alongside a holy God. You don't deserve it. It's a grace. But you're now there. Praise God. Striving for excellence to know God is empowered by God and his graces. And he has supplied all that we need. And we should never forget that. It's not vain. It's not vain or vanity or pride that makes you want to serve God and be the best you can. It's simply acknowledging that grace and that love that you have from him and for him. Again, Kostenberger writes, Christians do not apply effort to add various virtues to their faith in order to earn God's grace or his forgiveness or his salvation, but rather in response to that grace and forgiveness and salvation that has already been received. That's why we do it. Because of what he's already done. So our pursuit of excellence is from God. Our purpose for excellence is for God's glory. The means of our excellence is God's gracious power, his grace. But what's it, what do we need to do with that? What does it actually look like in our life? Well, that's reason number four, verse eight. Your provision in excellence is effective for God. What does, this, what does pursuing excellency look like? It's effectiveness for his work. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a promise here worth taking note of, worth keeping in your heart. If you are growing in faith and striving for God's glory in life, in living a life of excellence, Those characteristics that show up in your life in that progression that we saw from verse to 5 to 7, if you're actually fulfilling, if you're actually growing in those graces, then what you do in life for Jesus, whatever it might be, will not be ineffective, but effective. Our calling is a life of good works. And I think we generally have a narrow and unbiblical view of good works. Do you have... 
to go on a mission field or preach a sermon or go witness in the streets to be fulfilling good works in Christ. Those are good works. But no, those are not the only good works you do. You don't have to have a Bible in hand to be doing a good work for Christ. I know you're going to say, yeah, yeah, I understand that. Yeah, I understand that. Can you clean toilets for Christ? Can you take the rubbish out or brush your hair for the glory of God? I know you're going to say yes, because that's the right answer. But really, you're going to say, yes, but I don't understand how. (laughs) That's what I would think. That's what I do think. You're going to say, you know, I know 1 Corinthians 10.31. We do all things for the, you know, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do for the glory of God. I know that. But really, how does brushing my teeth count for God's glory? Really? Anything we do in faith is a good work. Anything we do in faith, anything we do consciously submitting to the general statements of God's will, knowledge from the Bible is counted to us as righteousness. Loving your neighbor as yourself, when you consciously in faith serve others because of that commandment in faith, you're doing a good work. And that's how you can clean toilets for God's glory. That's how you can take the rubbish out or even brush your teeth for God's glory. Because it's an act of love and service for others. My wife generally appreciates it when I brush my teeth. Because it's honoring the things that God has given you. He's given you this body. He's given you these teeth. He's given you your family to take care of. Even if it's cleaning the toilets. A good work is anything that we do that is good and done in faith. Taking care of others. Loving others. Whatever God has called. You know, what has actually God actually called a good work? Do you know that in the Bible, God's actually called raising children a good work? Showing hospitality to strangers is a good work. Which includes the mundane task of washing their feet. Being good employees in Ephesians 6 is a good work. Effectiveness is a buzzword that we hear today. But here in, first, in 2 Peter 1.8, God is telling you when you strive for his glory and his excellence, it is promised to you that you will be effective. What does effectiveness mean? Look again at the end of the ladder. It's a life of love. Matt Perman writes when, in his book, uh, What's Best Next? Um, about Christian productivity. He summarizes the biblical theology of productivity in terms that exhorts the reader to love. He says, don't just try to get things done. Seek to serve others to the glory of God in everything you do. The fact that productivity is about doing good works also means that productivity is first about others and not ourselves. Christians are to be known by their love. Not just love in the abstract, but in everyday lives. And this substantially is shown through the concern of being a benefit to others in all that we do. Not just some things that we do. In all that we do. So what does effectiveness look like? Someone who knows a lot? No. But someone who accomplishes a lot? No. Effectiveness is someone who is characterized by the love of God in all that they do. That's effectiveness. That's the top of the ladder. That's what Christ will credit and look for 
when you go home. Now we come to the very last reason and purpose for excellence, verses 9 to 11. Your proof of excellence is assurance from God. Your proof of excellence is assurance from God. Your pursuit of excellence gives us assurance of salvation, proof of God's salvific work in your life. Look at verse 9. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you are for you, if you practice these qualities, you will never fail, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are called to be a people with a goal. Thinking about eternity, not this world. Living for eternity, not this world. Where we are going, not where we are. There's a warning and a blessing here. Here's the warning. The lack of these virtues will issue blindness and forgetfulness of your own salvation. So this is not a guarantee of not being a, a saved, but it's a guarantee of not being confident about your salvation. He's pointing out to these believers who are being indoctrinated with false doctrines and, and being told by these false teachers to look one way or the other, but not at the goal. To trust in assurances that are not from the word of God, but in the teachings of other men. And what will happen? He's talking to believers. He's saying, what's going to happen is not, you're not going to lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, what's going to happen is you're going to lose confidence. You're not going to be sure. You're going to be struggling with your own sin. You're not going to be clear about the goal or about the gospel. You're going to be confused. You're going to be scared. The blessing is that the increase of these virtues, as you see God working in your life, as you're walking with the Spirit, as you are living this out in your life and being effective, knowing and seeing God working, what's going to happen naturally? Confidence in knowing that I know God works. I see Him working in my life. God is working in your life and you will have a sense of closeness with Him. You will see His hand working in you and through you and in that you will see Him working. You'll have that assurance, that confidence that comes with living and walking in the Spirit. Listen, it's a true statement that growth is not optional in the Christian life, but stagnation is. Do you understand what I'm saying? You, growth is not optional. If you're a Christian, you are growing. It's impossible not to. But you can stagnate that growth. You can struggle in the faith. And if that struggle goes for very long you start wondering, where am I? What am I really doing here? You can stop people growing, but you, you, can, you, you, you can't stop people growing. You can't stop a child growing, but you can hinder their growth with malnutrition. You can hinder the spiritual life with malnutrition, feeding it junk food. Same is true of the Christian life. There are those in Christ who have settled with good enough. Oh, I'm saved, good enough. And have stagnated in their walk. We have a higher calling. 
We have so much more in Christ and so much more to offer God and the world through our life of excellence. So let me just review, again, five reasons for you to pursue excellence in all that you do. First, your pursuit of excellence is from God. It's his calling. Your Your second, your purpose for excellence is for God's glory. It's not your glory. It's his glory that you pursue excellence for. Third, your power in excellence is a grace of God. Your ability to be excellent in God's grace, in God, is, for, is because of his grace. It's his enabling. His calling is his enabling. Fourth, your provision in excellence is effective for God. He, as you pursue that excellence, you will be effective in your walk with God. In your, you'll be effective in what you do for God. And then lastly, your proof of excellence is assurance from God. As you are doing these things, as you're fulfilling the purposes of your life in God, you will have that assurance of walking and knowing him. That sweet, intimate relationship that comes from walking in the Spirit. Confidence in your salvation. Again, don't settle with good enough in your life. Don't settle with good enough. Oh, you know, I finally reached it. I'm an elder. I remember a professor at seminary said so many men become elders. They become mature enough to be considered an elder at their church. And then when they get to that position, they stop. That's just the beginning. That's the beginning of a life that is to be characterized with moral excellence. Don't just settle with good enough, but with excellence. We have so much more to offer Christ. So much more that we can do in Christ. So much more to do in this world. Because we're not home yet. We haven't fulfilled our purposes yet. Because we're still here. And all that we need is here. Let me just conclude by reading verse 3 again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Thank you, brothers and sisters.